Jackson. Mike Golo with Candy ain't coming to this town and thinking the Clippers are getting a win. The great niche that once was Lawrence Frank as the Clippers. <laughs> oh, Magic uh, snapped that losing streak. And time to kick off a winning streak. We haven't played the Magic Victory song much this year, but we do play it after a weeknight win. That's on, well, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, they beat the Clippers 116-111 to 111 in overtime last night. How about that, Scott Harris? Statement win right there, baby. It's what it does, man. Get the positive news about J.I. Can I, can I, can I swim in the glass half full side first? Yes, of course. That's the only side to okay. swim on. Well, I do want to present a second side, but 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 I do want to swim in the glass half full side. Ready? Um, Powell goes for twenty three, hits a few late free throws, hits thirteen to fourteen free throws of the game. Uh, Mo Wagner's playing its way into the All Star game uh, with a twenty and thirteen night at the center position. Uh, Bull Bull goes for twenty and nine. Uh, the Magic, after being down 18 in the first quarter, come back and get the win. Big fourth quarter, down seven, uh, fighting off late Clipper attempts to put the basketball game away, and a scrappy effort by the hometown guys. You celebrate the 116-111 win, and you say, if they just get healthier... Things are looking good. You got it? You good? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, right? That's the glass half full side. Yeah. All right. What else we got on the show? No, 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 no. Hang on a second. Okay. Now, I'm not, I'm not, anything's cheapening. Oh, here we go. No, no, no. The modern NBA played a role in last night's Magic Clippers game. The modern NBA. What is that, Mark? Three-point shooting, which you say is so important? Well, the Magic were actually 29% on 8 of 28. And the Clippers were 15 of 41. The modern NBA played a role in last night's game. Come on, don't tease me. What is it? Last night, the Magic beat the Clippers 116-111 in the NBA record books. It counts as a win for the Magic, and that's all that matters. All that matters. Last night, the Clippers had not one, not two, but three players. That someone sitting not far from Tyrone Lue had one job to do last night. Does anybody know what that job was? There was a player by, among the 37 people that are on NBA bench now, there's one person that had a job last night with Ty Lue. Do you know what that was? I will tell you what that was. One person was in charge of monitoring minutes played for three Clipper players last night. Former Yankee great Reggie Jackson, Mm -hmm. along with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, all have missed time because of injuries this season, were on minute restrictions last night. Because, because, we have advanced so much in the medicine of the game. The medicine of the game? The medicine of the game. That now our training staffs are able to determine, at least so I'm told, how long one should play. 
So last night, the Clippers are limiting three players to 30 minutes. Now, if you look at the box score, you'll say, well, wait a minute, something happened here. Reggie Jackson last night, Scott, played 31 minutes. Mm-hmm. Paul George played 33 minutes. Kawhi Leonard played 30 minutes. By the way, if you're watching that game last night, whether at the arena or on television, or maybe you're listening here, uh, take a look at the final possessions of regular uh, of uh, regulation and ask yourself why Paul George wasn't in, and then take a look at who didn't start in overtime and who barely played. And by the way, this is a direct quote from Tyrone Liu after the game about putting Kawhi Leonard back in after being cold for a while on the bench. Okay? We had one minute left to use him, and we thought that was the right time. Hmm. Again, good for the Magic. It's a good win for them. Wins have been hard to come by. Welcome to the modern NBA. We're now we're monitoring. Wait a minute. What? He's at 29-10. If he plays an extra two minutes, he'll explode on the court, Scott. He'll just evaporate. Yeah. And, oh my goodness, today, Paul George played three extra minutes. I can only imagine now what happens. By the way, both George and Leonard Bailey speaks, but Paul George, he gave his opinion that he understands, but he'd prefer to play. He wishes he's able to not be restricted in in moments like that. And I'm sure in the first quarter there at 32-14, the Clippers are thinking, okay, we get a blowout, we can rest these guys, they won't even play 30 minutes. But imagine, imagine, Scott, you're Ty Lue. And, And the competitor, anybody, okay? Suddenly your big lead's gone. The Magic rally, the Magic lead, and, and, and Nicholas Batu now is your choice to hit threes because some guy next to you going 28-40. Yeah, but 29-30. I know, but what? Is he just going to explode if he plays three and a half minutes and so forth? Do you know why Jimmy Butler missed uh, uh, the Pistons game of the night? Why the, did he miss it? The, 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 the Heat played the Pistons. Mm-hmm. The the Pistons won in Miami. Yeah, by almost twenty. Yeah, okay. The reason given for Jimmy Butler not playing: return to competitive conditioning. He just wasn't up to speed yet, Mark. It was what he wasn't up to speed yet, Mark. Return to competitive conditioning was the reason he didn't play. Yeah, and yeah. why do I imagine? What have I said the last couple of weeks? It, it, it's not just a joke. It's just because you're required by the NBA and its betting partners to provide some sort of medical update. but So, so that's why he didn't play. And again, last night, and not the fault of the Magic, the Clippers had three players on 30-minute restriction. Yeah, I'm sorry, what now? He can't be an easy player to pull out of a game on minute restrictions either, Jimmy Ooh. Butler. No, but... I, I, and the Clippers will tell you, bigger picture. You know, uh, game 26 in Orlando, they'll view as a bad loss. But they'll say, worth it to protect these guys for down the line and for the playoffs, and they'll make the playoffs. That's all that really matters. And you'd hate to have setbacks of a game in December that didn't really matter. And I get that. Again, that's not the Magic's fault that the Clippers did that. The Magic should celebrate their win for all the reasons I said before. But, yeah. Would you like to be that guy? Hey, Ty, 27-40. Yeah, I would, actually. That That guy probably makes a lot of money. Oh, he actually said that. We had a minute left with Kawhi. A minute left of what? Yeah. His leg will fall off if he plays a 31st minute. 
Anyway, uh, good for the Magic uh, winning the game last night. So I had that lunch yesterday. Yeah, I know. Went to see a, a couple I said, of... I said not, I sat next to the table. No, you didn't. Had a couple of... But, no, we were at the chat room at Dubstrap. Hey, by the way, that was a power room yesterday. Yeah? We sat outside, but on the walk from inside to outside, whoa. Scott, high-powered attorneys, local bankers, old Orlando money, a few of the Winter Park socialites, and then us three clowns and then outside. You, and mainly, and then you, um, with your ketchup pants. I didn't realize that one of my friends, the two, had reserved a table. I reserved a table. I go, I'm sitting inside. I go, hey, where are you guys? Because we're here sitting. And, you know, oh, that whole that's not good. Deal. But you know what I found out? I've been friends with these guys for uh, 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Scott, 30 years ago, we'd have wings, onion rings, nachos, cheese sticks, right? And then the dinner. All three of us got a salad. Oh. Ready? What medicine do you take? Oh, uh, do you take? Yeah. And I, I was at my doctor, and, he, and and that was like the first 20 minutes. I go, look look at us right now, oh, right? man. One's talking about grandkids and everything, and we're, you know, talking about pains of this or that, you know? And then one of my friends says, yeah, so I've got to go see a specialist, but he's like the number one guy. And I said, does anybody go, I couldn't get the number one guy, so I'm seeking a chance Guy 225, he's got an opening next week. I'm going to go see him. Everybody, Everybody's going to see the number one specialist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone was last in the medical class. Just remember that. Doc, how'd you do? You know, I was in the lower percentile, but I got a degree. It was online, but, you know, take your chance here, right? Uh, on our program today, Cam Meller's weekly visit at Pro Football Network and College Football Network uh, to talk about the action on the field. Brad Edwards, for years was the go-to guy at ESPN to explain the BCS. And then the College Football Playoff Committee. Uh, Brad's going to join us to talk a little bit of college football and do the committee get it right. And I want to tap into his knowledge of how the committee evolved over the years and what a 12-team playoff might look like for the committee and how they handle things like that. We'll talk with him. And a history lesson today that is absolutely fantastic. Is it a history lesson about why it's horrible to be a Boston Red Sox fan? Wait a minute. Horrible to be a Red Sox fan. You just invested $90 million in Masataka Yoshida. Yeah. And? Well, Xander Bogarts isn't coming back. There's that. Yeah. So you guys gave Trevor Story all that money, uh-huh. and a really popular guy in Bogarts, you're like, eh, we won't extend you, and now he just left. I look forward to... Another one of those decade deals, as he's gone to the Padres. I know I know. Bill Simmons tweeted this, but I'm, I'm in agreement with him. I cannot wait for... At some point, either this winter or some point in the summer, these the Rafael Devers for five prospects tree that'll happen. Oh, next. that's coming. That they, they, yeah, Mark. How many times have I told you this? It is a cycle. The Red Sox feed Liverpool, which feeds into Fenway Sports Group, Redbird Entertainment, wanting to buy an NBA franchise. That's how it works. The Boston Red Sox do not care about winning baseball games anymore. They don't. They just don't care. And that's got to be. Tell me, point to me otherwise. Well, they just signed, you know, sought-after free agent. Yes, instead of keeping one of your own. That's the one that you would look at your fans and go, Oh, wait, oh, wait, but Mark, they did this already with Mookie Betts. Yeah. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about Tom, uh, Tom Brady going back to his hometown. 20 minutes into that show. 
Guy hasn't lived there in 30 years, and he's supposed to have an emotional attachment to the football Any game extra week. motivation. Yeah. Uh, we come back. Why the quarterback of your favorite college football team likely won't be on your team. Uh, and why this commissioner just said expansion. Yeah, let's go. Next. One last side victory song plays today. We're brought to you by our friends at Seminole Power Sports, number one in fast fun. Reinhardt Road in Sanford, Highway 441 in Eustis. Online at SeminolePowerSports.com. It's the holiday season and a great time to visit Seminole Power Sports. Great deals available for you. Uh, whether it's for the road, the water, the dirt, camping, you'll find it all at Seminole Power Sports and hope you will visit uh, and enjoy everything they have to offer. Um, first, uh, when you hear expansion in college sports, everybody goes, what? Huh? <clears throat> uh, so, so there was a, a, a conference in Las Vegas, and who passes up an opportunity to go there? And sometimes in sports, like a lot of industries, you may not want to go, but if you see that your biggest competitors or, quote, equals of yours are going to something, then you go because you don't want to not be seen there. So we have a situation where all the bigwigs of college sports and conference commissioners were at this event and therefore that means media opportunities a few things of the commissioner speaking yesterday greg sankey made it pretty clear that if college football somehow has an idea of putting a czar or commissioner in charge he one he doesn't want the job and two he pretty much told you we're the sec no one's going to tell us what to do no shock there um, all the commissioners spoke about the 12-team college football playoff and the good part about it. Brett Yormark ripped the Rose Bowl. I like Brett. He's selling 25 hours a day, but when he says they were more, you know, about putting themselves first, yeah, what what conference doesn't do that to put themselves first? Um, but uh, uh, Kevin Warren... When asked about expansion, says we're comfortable where our membership is and pretty much said, I don't see anything happening on the horizon. Jim Phillips, the commissioner of the ACC, he said, well, you're always out there looking, but it has to be a good fit for you. George uh, uh, George Klapkoff of the Pac-12, he had a couple of interesting ones. He said... And quickly, 10 o'clock hour, WYGM, Orlando, WJR, HD2, Cocoa Beach, Orlando sports leader, Mark Daniels, and the Beat of Sports. He said he expects the Pac-12 media deal to be done not this year, but next year. And he said after we get that deal done, then we'll look at expansion. Remember that last point for a second. He added that he thinks Deion Sanders hiring at Colorado should increase the offers for the Pac-12 media deal. Wow. Uh, I don't think a single industry expert would agree with what he said. While Deion Sanders has certainly made himself a story the last few days and travels 24-7 with a social media and content team, and good for him, Scott wishes he could do that. He doesn't have the budget to do it. This is true. 
Deion Sanders doesn't make TV networks go, you know, I think we should give the Pac-12 an additional $100 million because Deion Sanders is the coach. And unless he's signing a, quote, grant of rights to stay as the coach for as long as you're asking members in your league to sign a grant of rights, I don't think that's how it works. Because any TV network's going to go, George, if Dion leaves in a couple years, do we take the money back that you think you're worth anyway? When he talks about expansion, where? If if Kevin Warren at the Big Ten is right, or not right, if he's telling you, hey, I, I don't think our members are interested in going beyond where we are, and there's only one school that would make them change their mind, and that's Notre Dame. The Big 12 has an immediate deal, the parameters in place, and a commitment of the 12 to a grant of rights. Where's he fishing? The only place he's fishing is the Mountain West, and that means Boise State, San Diego State, UNLV, um, and anybody else out there. Brett Yormark, the commissioner for the Big 12, when asked about expansion, says open for business and said his goal is to be coast-to-coast. When asked about Gonzaga for basketball only, mentioned about brand value, says we're doubling down on basketball as a national conference, and uh, didn't rule out the possibility of a non-football member. I don't think there's support for that. That's my opinion. Among the 12 schools that will make up the Big 12, when Oklahoma and Texas leave, I, I, I don't think there's support for it. But um, he he made it clear that he's still interested in expansion and then says all the right things. So that that that's what made some people go, oh, wow. Meanwhile, the ACC, when Jim Phillips is telling you about expansion, I, again, here's his point, where? The only thing he could do would be to merge with the Pac-12. And I'm not quite sure that works. You can't exactly be the Pac-12 and try to block a move by UCLA to the Big Ten, because USC is a private school, and one of the foundations of your argument is well the travel it's unfair to these kids and then go but the thought of merging with the acc sounds like a good idea anyway as the transfer portal now finds more than 1300 players that have entered the portal and of the 1300 more than half are three-star players when they came out of high school and player movement continues more players enter the portal now more players are posting on social media who their finalists are of where to go. Translation, up the offer. Um, So I went back and I took a look at something. Yesterday, the Florida Gators got a verbal commitment for 2024 of one of the better quarterbacks in that class. This comes on the heels of Florida flipping, at least verbally, Jaden Rashada, the quarterback that was initially committed well, first leaning towards Florida, then committed to Miami, then changed his commitment to come to the Gators. What a collective decision. And um, now they get a commitment for 2024. And good for Billy Napier. I, again, many people who criticized Napier uh, during the offseason uh, months of recruiting and it, this guy know what he's doing. Billy Napier looks like he's going to get himself a top 10 class in two weeks and laying the foundation for 2024 already. But if you're a Florida fan, and uh, to me, a fan shouldn't care, meaning get as many players as you can, let the coach and the players figure it out, and go win games for me because that's what I want as a fan. 
Reality is you don't really care. You may care when the portal opens, but you don't really care until the season comes and every team wins. Players come and go, get used to it. The chance of the two quarterbacks, the one verbally committed for next season and may sign in a couple of weeks likely, and the one for 24th, the chance of both playing their entire career at Florida is blank. You fill in the blank. I don't need to fill it in for you. You fill it in. Maybe you think it's 80%. Maybe I think it's 0%. I don't think it's 80%, and I'll tell you why. If you take a look at the last recruiting cycle of four years, I'm not counting 2022. I'm giving you the last four years. So I went back and I looked at 24-7 quarterbacks, just quarterbacks, in the last four seasons. Watch Scott go to work here math-wise. Let's do this. Scott, top ten in the last four seasons means how many total? Four. Ten in the last four years means how many total? Forty. Oh, sorry. Yes. Okay, don't watch Scott do this, okay? So I went back to take a look of the top ten quarterbacks according to 24-7 and who did not transfer and who did transfer. Oh. Okay? So that would be 40 Mm -hmm. quarterbacks. Yeah. Okay? 2018, Trevor Lawrence was the number one quarterback, started at Clemson, and finished at Clemson. I'm not going to run through all 40 names here, but just to give you an idea, uh, the number two quarterback uh, that year is uh, Justin Fields at Georgia. He went to Ohio State. Yes. The number three quarterback that year, JT Daniels, USC, Georgia, West Virginia, Portal. Okay? TBD. The number four quarterback that, uh, that year, Dorian Thompson-Robinson at UCLA. Okay, In total in 2018. And, and to go down, Jaron Williams is at Miami, ended up at Alabama A&M. Uh, Phil Jerkovich, Notre Dame, Boston College, and now Pitt. So in 2018, five of the ten transferred. In 2019, let's go to 2019. Top ten quarterbacks in the class of 2019. Ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start out at the top, and that would be Spencer Rattler, Oklahoma to South Carolina. Yep. Number two, Bo Nix, Auburn to Oregon. Number three, Jaden Daniels, Arizona State to LSU. Number four, Ryan Alinsky, South Carolina to Northwestern. Number five, Graham Mertz, Wisconsin, now headed to Kentucky. Uh, in total, six of the top ten in 2019 transferred. In 2020... Of the top quarterbacks, according to 24-7, okay, in 2020, he, um, DJ uh, Ungle. Yes. Portal. The greatest recruit since Trevor Lawrence. Hudson Card, Texas, Portal. Um, and, hang on. Uh, Jay Quinn and Jackson, Texas, now Utah. Uh, Harrison Bailey, Tennessee, UNLV. Ethan Garbers, Washington to UCLA. Haynes King, Texas A&M, Portal. Jay Butterfield, Oregon, Portal. Seven of the ten. Seven of the top ten quarterbacks in 2020. Gone. Gone. 2021. Quinn Ewers, Ohio State, now at Texas. Caleb Williams, Oklahoma, now USC. Uh, Sam Heward at Washington, Likely to enter the portal because Michael Penix chose to come back. He hasn't done it yet, but now people think he will. Um, Jake Garcia, Miami, 
doubtful he goes back to Miami with Tyler Van Dyke coming back. Okay, Jack, I'm sorry, but how many how many schools has Jake uh, did he play? His next will be his uh, third, technically fourth, but but third. Jackson Dart, USC to Old Miss. Of the 40 quarterbacks in the last four years in the top 10 of those, 23 of the 40 gone. And by the time a couple of others make decisions, so keep that in mind. It's not your job to worry about it. You want the best players to to, to sign with your team and then let others figure it out. Talent acquisition is what it's all about, but just in quarterbacks, one in two, and it's actually a bit more, in the top ten in the last four seasons, gone. Gone. And my guess is that number probably will be closer to 60%. Yes. I, I was trying to ask, um, how many schools, high school in college, has Jake Garcia played football at? I believe he was at um, five different high schools. Didn't play for all five. I think he played for three. I think it was at five different high schools. And this would be a third, quasi-fourth. He didn't go to one place. So, yeah. <laughs> For years, Brad Edwards was the go-to guy at ESPN to analyze all the computers of the BCS in the early years of the college football playoff project, uh, playoff rankings, um, and still follows it to a degree, even though he's out of that everyday cycle. He'll join us next to talk about what the committee may have done to evolve in years and what a 12-team playoff process may be like. Brad Edwards, uh, next. The beat of sports, Martin Daniels, Magic Victory song. Anytime they win, you know, we play the song. Uh, we're brought to you by our friends at Florida Citrus Sports Bowl. Season is here. Don't miss the Cheez-It Bowl. Uh, Florida State, Oklahoma, and the uh, Cheez-It Citrus Bowl on January the 2nd. LSU and Purdue ticket information at Ticketmaster.com. And to learn about all the upcoming events with uh, those bowls, visit our friends at FloridaCitrusSports.com. Uh, For many, many years, he was the go-to guy at ESPN to understand everything when it came to the computers and BCS model and even in the early years of the college football playoff, what the projections uh, may look like. And uh, Brad Edwards is kind of join us and talk a little bit about uh, the college football playoff committee uh, now and even in the future and uh, brad uh, thanks for joining us good morning how are you you doing uh i'm doing good thank you i want to start uh by the way i i thought of you uh, a couple weeks ago as the play-by-play guy at ucf they're playing a game against navy they lose and now i'm looking at tiebreakers in the american that include four computers that were used in the bcs <laughs> and i thought i might need to reach out to brad to break this down it's still in our lives brad it was still in our lives wow. i didn't know that so uh, yeah there, there's a holdover um that's interesting you know i don't know if you saw but uh, I get this question every year, uh, the day that the committee releases its uh, its final standings, and people always want to know what would the BCS standings have looked like if it was still in effect. And uh, I don't calculate it myself anymore, yeah. but there's a guy online who still does. And uh, it's tough to say this with certainty, but based on what the computers spit out, um, all nine years – the top four of the selection committee, not necessarily in the same order, though, uh, has been the same top four that the BCS would have had. Um, now, the reason I say it can't be known for sure is that I think we saw very early in this playoff era 
that the voters in the polls started to adjust to what the committee was doing. Yeah. And they were there's no doubt they were impacted by the committee rankings and the way they voted. So if there was no committee, you do have to wonder, would the polls look the same? I, you know, no, no one knows for sure. But, yeah, it's interesting that there, there is no glaring example of, of the committee having done something that was completely different from what the BCS formula would have given us. No, and, you know, uh, to follow up on that, I always thought that the voters polled the week after the first playoff poll was fascinating because then you saw the adjustment where all of a sudden a team yeah. moved seven spots, even though they you know won by three. And it was like, wait a minute, what's going on? Well, they're human. And all of a sudden they wanted to be like everybody else. But let me go, let me go there. Where do you think the committee perhaps evolved from the early years and got better? I, I, I'm one publicly that defends the committee because I think that the public and even some members of the media don't realize the access to the analytics that they do have, where there's still a lot of media people that may still use the eye test. And I give the committee credit by taking the time to look at the valuable possessions and roadwinds and things like that. But how do you think they did evolve from the first year to where we are now? Yeah, I can't say that I see an area where I think they've evolved or I think that they've improved. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would say is the process in general is better than what it used to be, just because instead of having, you know, 60-something independent thinkers, or I guess in the case of the BCS where you had two different polls, you had 100-something independent thinkers. Here, not only do you have a smaller number, but but you have people who were – having conversations with each other, and they're bouncing ideas off each other. And so people are forced to consider a, a way of looking at this team that they might not have thought of on their own. And I, I think that collaboration uh, is, is certainly an improvement. I, I think the biggest mistake that the committee made from day one is declaring, not only in writing, but reinst- just just reiterating it verbally over and over and over that they're giving us the four best teams because at no point have they ever been interested in giving us the four best teams. If they were interested in the four best, there would be no criteria. When, when you start putting criteria on it, you say, okay, well, schedule strength matters and conference championships matter, and head-to-head matters, or whatever, you start putting all these factors on, you're, you're no longer just simply going by who's best. You're, you're 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 basing your definition of best on certain conditions, and, uh, and and to me it ceases to be best, and it really becomes something more like most deserving. And I think this year is a great example of that. Um, you may disagree, and others out there may disagree, and that's fine. But to me, I, I can't believe for one second that TCU is better than Alabama. Um, I can't believe that TCU is better than Ohio State, who the committee, even though they put them both in the playoff, they have TCU seated higher than Ohio State, and it matters. It matters because Georgia's now having to play a better team than who Michigan is having to play, in my opinion. Now, there, I mean, there are going to be people out there who would say, oh, I think TCU's great. I think they beat Ohio State. I think they beat Alabama. To me, best or better is, is simply a question of, okay, if they played ten times, who do you think would win more than five? Or especially if you're talking about seven or eight out of ten. And and I, I think if, if TCU played either Alabama or Ohio State, they're going to lose seven or eight out of ten times against those teams. And and so um, anyway, but I, but like I said, I think I think the majority of fans want to t- to see TCU in there, not Alabama. 
and and that's that's fine. But what you're doing is you're rewarding who's the most deserving, not who's actually the better team. Um, and, and and so if if they would just stop saying that, I think it would I think it would help. And especially as we get into this expanded playoff era, um, you can't tell us you're giving us the 12 best teams, especially when you're automatically putting in a team that's ranked outside of the top 12 um, because it's a conference champion. And I agree with the optics of saying that. I guess my pushback is, and look, if you told me you got to bet everything that you have, which ain't much, on Alabama TCU, I would pick Alabama. But here's my pushback on that. How many games do they get to lose and we no longer have that apply? Let's say the Texas A&M or the Texas game goes against him. Is three losses now enough to go that no longer applies? Is it eight and four? Because even at eight and four, they still probably would be favored in a neutral field over TCU. When does the games matter? Where, where at yeah, some no, point... I, I agree. Yeah. And and I would tell you, Alabama does not deserve to be in the playoff. Right. They, they played two top 15-ish teams all season long. And, and even though they lost on the road on the final play in both of those games. The reality is they didn't win either one of them. And so there's nothing about that profile that, that says that you're a top four team. But, but at the same time, you know, if, if you're asking me who's going to win if Alabama plays TCU, I'm, I'm taking Alabama. And, and TCU would win the game sometimes. Um, Alabama's not that much better than them. Um, but, but yeah, like I said, I think this is what fans want to see. So just, just stop saying best if you're the committee. Stop saying best. And, uh, and like I said, I don't even know if that's an option once you go to 12 teams because when you're automatically taking the six highest-ranked conference champions, some years uh, this year would be one of them if it had been in effect. You know, that's going to include a team from outside of the top 12. So you can't say that anymore. I mean, I guess you could say you're taking the six best non-champions. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, and then, and of course, then we get in a whole other issue of how they're going to seed it and all that, but, but we, can, we can talk about that later. Well, I mean, what do you think as we get to the 12-team era? Because now we're going to begin to debate uh, the 8-4s and, and the 9-3s and, 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 and impressive wins and quality losses. What do you think will be some of the bigger challenges of those six at large? The committee has never put a two-loss team into the playoffs. You know, in the in this fourteen model, and that's not to say it can't happen, because LSU was certainly in a position at one point this season where if they had won out, they would have been in the top four with two losses. Two thousand seventeen Auburn was ranked number two going into the SEC championship game with two losses, and if they had won that, they would have been in. So it, it can happen, but I would also say that. With all the the things that we're told that the committee considers and is supposed to consider, the one number that has consistently been the most important to the selection committee when you evaluate their results year after year after year is the loss column. I mean, we're we're not told that that's one of the things that, that they put a priority on, but that is the one they put the most priority on because even though they know that the Big 12 or the Pac-12 is not as strong as the SEC, um, there's still something subconscious where I, I think they almost look at all the Power Five conferences as the same, even though they know they're not. And so, therefore, a, a two-loss team has to be better than a three-loss team or one-loss team better than a two-loss team. And, um, and you just wonder how much is that going to carry over when you get into the 12th team. Because if you, if you look at this year's 
final standings, our final rankings by the committee, and you apply the 12-team format to it, the only two-loss team that doesn't get in from the Power Five is Washington. Washington, I think, was number 12 at, uh, you know, at 10 and 2. They wouldn't get in. There would be no, the only three lost teams that would get in would be conference champions. Now, I went and I looked back, and there were, there are other years where that's also the case. So there's this assumption that, oh, like a team like an Alabama or an Ohio State or whatever, they're always going to get in at 9 and 3. No, there, there's some years where, where no three lost team is getting in unless they're a conference champion. Um, but then there are other years where where it did happen, where it would have happened if the 12 team thing had been in, pl- in place. So I, I think um, that's kind of the wait and see. Is when you ask like you know how many losses is it going to take to knock them out? It really depends on the season and what happens in the other conferences because there are there are some years like this one where three losses if you're not a conference champion, um, there's not a spot for you. I am curious, uh, when we uh, get to 16-team conferences in a couple of years as the new model kicks in, um, it's harder to go undefeated in a conference, uh, and maybe we don't have as many 12-0, teams. What kind of impact do you think we will see in the playoff process when we now have these, quote, super 16-team leagues? Well, I, I think that's the big question relative to what I just said, mm-hmm. which is the, the committee's um, tendency to kind of gravitate toward the loss column as the most important number, because when you add, you know, USC and UCLA to the Big Ten, and you add Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC, those conference schedules just got even more difficult. And and now, I mean, to to go nine and three in one of those leagues, you got to be pretty good. Um, and and I would say you've got to be better to go nine and three in those leagues than you'd have to be to go ten and two in the Big Twelve. Uh, or maybe even the ACC, the way the ACC has been playing the last two years. But um, is the committee going to look at it that way? I, I don't know. And, th- and this is where, like, I was, I was just hoping at some point in this four-team model, and they've got one year left to do it, that we would get a two-loss team in there, and we would hear a committee member say, we think they should be in there um, because – their two losses is more impressive than this other team's one loss. Um, well, I mean the, the whole body of work. Their 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 eleven and two or whatever it is is more impressive than this other team's twelve and one because of the strength of the schedule. I just I just wanted to hear that. I wanted to hear someone get in because of strength of schedule. And up to this point, we haven't seen it because look, I, I would tell you that the the ideal in this twelve team world is that it should improve non-conference scheduling. You know, if, if you know that, okay, no matter how many games you lose out of conference, you could, you could lose all of them. If you go and win your conference title, you're in the playoff. Simple as that. But if you're not a conference champion, the more big games you can win, the more quality opponents you beat out of conference, um, the better your chance of getting one of those you know, six at large spots, then you would think that for a lot of teams, that means, hey, go out and play other Power Five opponents, as many as you can get. Um, the better they are, you know, the, the more it helps you in theory. Um, and, and it should improve non-conference scheduling. The problem is if the committee doesn't reward that and they still stick to the loss column, then, you know, we're still going to get games that we don't want to see for the most part uh, in September. 
Uh, Brad Edwards is on uh, Twitter, at jbradedwards, and he's doing some writing at bvmsports.com. By the way, it was Anderson and Hester, Billingsley, Collie, and Wolf for the four computers that the American has as a tiebreaker because everybody didn't play everybody in the tiebreaker. It didn't come down to that, but those are the four BCS computers that were still in use, by the way, Brad. That's interesting because they're they're different. Some of them consider margin of victory, and some of them don't. So um, they're not they're not even consistent that way. But yeah, just so you know, in some form, it's still alive. I, I <laughs> Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Yeah. You got it. Take care. Brad Edwards, who for years was uh, ESPN's go-to guy and analyzing the BCS and all the computers and everything, and uh, not in that daily grind anymore, but still follows obviously. Uh, what's happening. More football now in the field as uh, Cam Miller's weekly visit is next. Magic victory song of the uh, Clippers last night. Let's get to Cam Miller. Time to check in with Pro Football Network's Cam Miller for the latest on college football. Get the latest college football news at profootballnetwork.com. All right, here's Cam Miller, Senior Director of College Football Network uh, on Twitter at CFN365, NFL Draft at uh, Pro Football Network, which is at PFN365, and he joins us. Well, now what? I mean, what do we do now? You know, I guess we look forward to the college football playoff, <laughs> right? Or try to make sense of the transfer portal, which I'm not going to lie, I'm having trouble keeping up with. So I've, uh, I'm excited to let it go, let the transfer portal do its thing, and then uh, I'll, I'll assess it after the dust is settled. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Uh, uh, you know, when some of these moves happen, and, and see if it truly helps a player or not. Um, let's go back and take a look at uh, uh, some interesting games and performances, and get your thought. Let's go back to last Friday. Give me your uh, opinion. How physical Utah was that led to what became a very lopsided game. And while I still think Caleb Williams is going to win the Heisman in a couple of days, what'd you take out of that game? Yeah, it's. It's. I think it goes back to how this Utah team has been built. Uh, they're built for the long haul. They're built for not just this season and the start of the season. They're built actually to get better as the year goes on. Uh, and we, I think we saw they're built from the ground up, from the trenches. That's a, the staple of the Kyle Whittingham era, in the, which has been incredible era and a long time for college football especially. But it's a, it's a testament to that and how they built up that program. You know, We saw the transformation of their defensive line become one of their better attributes. Uh, and their secondary is very good. Clark Phillips is a first-rounder at quarterback. He didn't really get to show it too much because teams started to avoid him in coverage. But, yeah, I mean, it's Cam Rising, a gutsy performance overall. Uh, I mean, it's next man up in that linebacker and that running back room. So every level of, of where that team is, it's physical, it's dominant, and honestly, they just get better as the years go on. By the way, um, Kyle Winningham's reputation uh, when it comes to, I mean, people view their team top physical team. Has that translated into the draft where that's the perception and you're getting NFL-ready guys? Yes. I would say in certain areas you are. Uh, there's still some things that uh, I think they need to work out if they wanted to to put some more offensive players uh, into the NFL. You're going to see some running backs that are ready, but I think honestly their their defense is you know that's what they're known for, and that's who who they're spotting in the NFL who is actually NFL ready. Uh, and you know maybe they're not the best overall guys from the NFL. They're definitely among the Pac-12 best, but they're guys that your NFL team is going to count on for you know. 18 weeks of the regular season now as, as role players and that guys that can step in. So I think we look at it as the secondary guys are definitely more ready. Um, and Clark Phillips may be the best of the recent bunch that is, you know, starting for multiple teams in the NFL, but they're coming around with, with these linebackers uh, and some of these, I mean, Devin Lloyd as well, but 
they're coming around at all positions of defense. And I think, you know, it's one of the more masterful jobs we've seen for college readiness, but also pro readiness in the past few years. He's a Heisman finalist. Uh, you had to admire the effort of the Big 12 title game. What's the body of work now that read on uh, Max Duggan? It's tough. I, I still am not sold on him as a uh, an NFL quarterback. He's been a good college quarterback that had a great season. Um, and ultimately, I think what we can say, their luck finally did run out in the Big 12 championship game. So we, we it was almost inevitable. It's unfortunate that it happened in their biggest game of the year. Uh, but, you know, still get the benefit of the doubt. For Duggan, he has some elite attributes. I think there are some moments in time where he has some of the more accurate passes. Uh, honestly, I think he's had better seasons throwing the ball, and he just didn't get the benefit of it because he had some very untimely drops from some pretty high pro- prolific receivers. Uh, but overall, he's a little bit too erratic with the football. Some of the decision-making is not there. But, you know, he's a guy who I think will stick on an NFL team for a long while, but maybe just not be counted on as that starter. Not everybody is a pro prospect, but he is six five. I mean, Will Howard ended up with 15 touchdowns and two picks, and um, what do you make of what he did in his time there? You know, it's it's tough to get the full read on him, but, I mean, he made that offense run. Uh, I would say maybe not quite as maybe runs the, bad, the poor choice for it because Adrian Martinez quite, had them literally running. Uh, but Will Howard, I mean, he's like a prototypical passer, right? He can stand tall in the pocket. He can deliver accurate passes, too. I want to see a little bit more from him where he's not, you know, once defenses figure out that he's the guy going forward and they have a little bit more tape on him and, and see how he adjusts and plays a little bit more of that off-platform, uh, you know, out of the structure of the offense type of uh, performances before we crown him too much. But, I mean, there's a lot that we can see and a lot that we have seen and a lot that there is to like with him going forward. Um, I have a Heisman ballot, and I, uh, honoring my pledge of not saying who I voted for, but I have said that two of the three people in my top three are not in New York. Um, I don't know if you have a Heisman ballot. I think I know who you would vote for. So if you would have, well, do you have a ballot or no? I do not. Okay. I openly, uh, okay. I guess openly answer it, yep. So if you had uh, three names to put on there, who would you put in what order? Yeah. I'm putting Caleb Williams there. I, I, I would, it'd be hard for me not to at least give one of my curveballs that I think deserves it. I, I do think Blake Corum is also in that top three for me as well. Caleb Williams probably still sets the number one just because of what he meant to, to the USC roster. But I'm going to throw Olu, Olu Atime from Michigan out there as probably my second best. I think he was the best player in the country this year. It's a very, not attractive position to play when you play center, but let's face it, you come in as a transfer from Virginia and you put up, you come into a Joe Moore award-winning unit and you become the best player on that unit immediately and you're the leader of that unit, you're the leader of the offense. And ultimately, if you look at it, how good was Blake Corum? He was great after he was contacted, but he was also not being contacted by defenders three, four, five yards down the field. That's just how dominant I think that Olu Batime was at center. The Michigan line was great, but Olu Batime would get my vote at second. But I would ultimately side with Caleb Williams at number one. Uh, I admit, uh, it, it, it's recent memory, and I saw them multiple times, but I'm curious of the pro profile on two guys that I think are playing Sundays, but I, 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 I defer to you. Michael Pratt, the quarterback at Tulane, that dude's really good. He's got great size. And someone's going to get a, a, a great player in Tajay Spears. That kid is I mean, forget what he just did against UCF, because I watch non-UCF games. He's really good. He might be undersized, but what's the pro read on those two guys? Yeah, Ty J. Spears may be the fastest player on the field whenever he steps on the field. He doesn't have the size you want on a running back nowadays, but I think that we're getting back to the 
the age where we want multiple running backs on a roster. We're staying in that age, but we're also getting to the point where we want guys who can create on their own, get to the edge, and, and use speed that they have to beat defenders. He's got that speed translates from the college field to the NFL field and honestly beyond. I'm surprised he's not more highly seen. I know he's only a redshirt sophomore, so we still have some time on him, but he has every bit of the, the ability you want from a three-down running back. He can catch the ball, and he's, I mean, he's exceptional. I love Ty J. Spears. Michael Pratt, I took a lot of flack for uh, by saying he was one of the better American quarterbacks coming back this year. Um, so I'm actually pretty ha- pretty happy with how he's turned out his season. He's, you know, inconsistent, I think, with some of his passes at times. But like you said, he can play and he can ball. So he's got accuracy, arm strength, and he's got that prototypical size, too, and that will to, to win the game, do whatever it takes. So I like him as sort of a sleeper in the NFL draft whenever he does decide that it is uh, time for him to make the leap. Yeah, he's really good. I mean, his vision is really, really sharp. Okay, I think I do this every single week, but now it's official for Anthony Richardson. Um, Again, uh, maybe the body of work is not enough. Maybe the speculation is good for him. Maybe he'll crush it in pro days, but now he's made it official. Is there a comparison you can think of the last couple of years of a guy that you wish you had more on, but now you're trying to decide what it can be? It's tough. I don't know if there's an equal comparison for him. Honestly, the easiest comparison is to look at a couple of different players. And I look at recency bias, and you do Malik Willis, where we didn't quite know what he had. He was an incredible athlete. And then Josh Allen, where you have, okay, fine, he did dominate, but it was against Mountain West schools, and he's got an arm. Does he have the accuracy? And I think we're combining a couple of different quarterbacks into to one with Anthony Richardson. So. It sounds incredible for a guy who barely could complete 50% of his passes at most times to, to say his ceiling is the first overall pick. But that's really where we're at in today's NFL landscape where you bank on elite tools, and he has enough of those to, to get that high. I still don't see it. I still wouldn't you know risk my franchise's uh, longevity and, and livelihood on him just yet. Um, but, I mean, no one really knows at this point, so we'll see. I, I, I still like him as that late day one, maybe even fringe day two. In an NIL pay-for-play world, maybe it's worth it for Michael Penix to go back to Washington. I know the people behind him in the depth chart probably wish he didn't make this decision, but we've talked about him before. There may be enough money for him that, hey, go back and play and get more on you to show what you can do, maybe passing game. What do you make of the business decision for him, and will it pay off? Yeah, I think we're going to see a couple more of those, too, of these dominoes fall where, where players might be seen as a potential rounds two, three, even getting you know friends on will day one grades, but come back because they can get guaranteed money. They can also help out in their communities, and they can also, like you said, cement themselves as a day one, round one type of player. And I think that's what Michael Penix can do. I think another season where he's fully healthy and he's able to elevate the players around him. Nobody knew his receiving core this year going into the year. Nobody. And now everybody knows exactly who Romo Dunze and Jalen McMillan are. And so to me, that showcased what he can do through a full 12 games, get to a Pac-12 title game, lead this team. I, th- I think with what he's done, you're going to make quite a bit of money, too, uh, coming back in today's NIL world, too. So I, I think ultimately it's a good business decision for him, showcase on tape that you can play a full season again and uh, cement yourself as a first-round pick. I always like asking about, a non-Power 5 players, uh, tell people about Dwayne McBride, who you put on your All-American team. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy, if you want to talk about a bowling ball with elite vision and also you know, competitive speed to the top players on the field, that's Dwayne McBride. He led the nation in running, still missed the opening game of the season as well. 
And he did this averaging seven and a half yards a carry, basically. Uh, He wasn't just a home run threat. He was a guy who was going to get you a first down basically on every single carry. UAB's offensive line was very good. If you look at it as well, you know, Florida transfer, Kadeem Telfort, anchoring the line, and ultimately it's a a terrific offensive line. But Dwayne McBride is is that just, you know, to use what the kids say, he is him. He is that dude. Uh, He is the guy who you want to build your, your team around. And honestly, I don't know why he doesn't get a lot more NFL draft type because he's got everything you'd want in the running back as well. He's undersized. I don't know if he's going to play on Sunday, and he's actually coming to the Cure Bowl that's here. Tell people about Carton Marshall, who played 58 to play a 59th game for Troy, took advantage of the extra year. Uh, the dude's only averaged like 120 tackles every year and 51 tackles for a loss. Again, I don't know because of his size at 5'9", but he's a tackling machine. Yeah, he, uh, if you want to talk about instincts and, and what you need as a middle linebacker, this is Carlton Marshall for you. Undersized, absolutely, but he plays like a missile. Uh, it gets into the football is the best way you can put it. It depends on where you look, too. He broke Luke Keekley's record, or I forget the other player that he might have beat. It was a Boston College linebacker, I think, from back in the day when they started officially tracking tackles. He's the all-time tackle leader in college football. You don't do that without uh, elite instincts. Uh, great speed, sound, and, and proficient tackling as well. I do think you know it's a great story. It's a great journey. One of the greatest college football linebackers of all time as a former walk-on. But ultimately, Carlton Marshall is, is he may wind up being just that, like you said, a little undersized in the NFL when everybody gets a little bit taller, a little bit bigger, and a little bit stronger. But yeah, one last ride for him uh, in Orlando, and we get to watch him, you know, set a new bar and a new record because uh, I don't know if that record of total tackles will be touched again. Is it possible that a Rose Bowl was all Jackson Smith and Jabe needed at Ohio State? Because it's an incomplete this year, right? It is. <laughs> it's um, Yeah, it's tough. You know, you look at that performance, and that also comes with maybe a caveat. He got chased down by Clark Phillips at one point and fumbled, uh, and ultimately who he was burning was Micah Bernard in that Rose Bowl, was Utah's running back who played cornerback a little bit in high school. So, yeah, I know he put up historic numbers. I still think he's a top-15 pick because of what we've seen from him, not just in that Rose Bowl, but also last year. Uh, He's got to prove that that hamstring doesn't bother him, though, because to miss an entire three months of the season because of one hamstring is a little worrying, a little uh, concerning going forward. But uh, we'll see as that goes on. He still has elite route running, great separation, and uh, amazing hands. Uh, The other one's not available for the draft, but if you had to pick between him and Marvin Harrison Jr.? Now I'd say Marvin Harrison Jr. Uh, you don't come with that 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 um, I guess foundation that he has from a Hall of Fame dad uh, and going forward elite body control. Not neither of them are the fastest guys in the field, but it doesn't matter because of how they can stack their defensive backs and, and create natural separation. But right now Marvin Harrison gets the uh, the edge for me. Uh, I'm going to force it answer this. I say force uh, about the transfer portal. How will NFL talent evaluators play a role? in some of these decisions because again this is all new now players have advisors now everyone's cheating and, and having contact during the season and so forth but now how how may those evaluators play a role in saying look maybe you ought to think about going here or that type of system for you because that has to be an evolving process of this as well yeah to me it's tough it's tough on the kids because they're going to start hearing more and more about what they should and shouldn't do and maybe not quite looking at what's best for them in the in the short term that ultimately leads to the long term so honestly there's an opening for somebody out there who wants to to be an advisor to you know for the kids needs and that's what i'm trying to do actually so being it's tough it's tough for evaluators and also i think what it does is it helps some of the players find themselves better places to yes elevate themselves into the nfl portal but it also on the flip side it, it turns those 
NFL scouts, uh, you, you can't helmet scout anymore. You have to uh, scout the player. So to me, I think it makes it a little bit more difficult for everybody involved. Um, and ultimately, I think the tide will turn over the next few years as this becomes more of the norm. Uh, Cam's on Twitter, at Cam Meller. Uh, CollegeFootballNetwork.com, the countdown clock is on to when they debut uh, on January 1. By the way, uh, a compliment to you and the staff because as you guys were announcing your All-American All-Conference teams, the feedback and the retweets of the teams and so forth, you got to earn that, and, and uh, there are a lot of people that do it. So uh, congrats. you got a lot of feedback from uh, some of the biggest programs. So uh, obviously you guys are doing something right there. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for that as well. It's a, it's a labor of love. You know, to watch as much. It might seem like the best job in the world to watch college football, but it certainly, uh, it certainly is uh, rewarding at times, challenging at others, and uh, it was nice to give these awards away and have it positively received. So thank you. Have a good week. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Cam. Cam Miller at uh, Pro Football Network and College Football uh, Network. We got a busy 11 o'clock hour that kicks off with, by the way, what's that shirt you're wearing today? It's a sweater. What is that? It says, This is the way. It's from The Mandalorian. Oh, it looked like a. Las Vegas Golden Knights uh, shirt. Oh, I mean, um, from a distance, that logo looks like you know. Yeah, I mean, the, I, could, the, I could, I could, I actually, now that you say that, I could totally a, see it's that. It's a yeah. Mandalorian. Yeah, he's the the Mandalorian. That's the the helmet he wears. He doesn't take it is off. Is that the top of a pajama set? Nope, it's just a sweater. Looks like a kid's large in pajamas, though. Okay, I'm small. I don't know what you want me to do. Do you want me to wear extra large clothes? Will that make it look better when I'm wearing something I'm swimming in? The news with Scott is next. Or? We do a World Cup update brought to you by our... Let's really do the news. Yes. Now it is time to do the news. But now it's time uh, for the news. 11 o'clock hour, WYJM, Orlando, WJRR, HD2, Coco Beach, Orlando Sports Leader, Mark Daniels in the beat of sports. Sorry I was late. That's okay. Happens sometimes. Uh, before I get into the that news... That mic's not on in that... Right? There's no way he's using that mic. You think so? He might actually be, because uh, I think that's how he does his podcast. kind of phony, but... Why? That's an industry standard microphone. <laughs> Who would do something like that? Oh, wait, I'd do that when we do the Peter Sports Overtime. They, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, before I get into the news, and I know you've got a history lesson coming up later in the show, uh, so hopefully I'm not stepping on uh, uh, your toes with this one... Uh, On this day, 11 years ago in the NBA. Okay, you're not stepping on toes here, so... Okay. Do you know what it is? On this day, 11 years ago in the NBA... um, No. David Stern said, knock, knock. Donald Sterling? Nope. Oh, that wasn't... uh, That was Adam Silver that did it. Chris Paul, you're not going to be a Laker. Oh, he blocked the move. Yeah. Six days. That's a great history lesson, but yeah. Six days later, he was traded. Uh, can you name any of the players in the trade that actually happened? Who? Uh, Eric Gordon, Chris Kamen, Magic Legend Al Farouk Amino, and a future draft pick, which went to become Austin Rivers. Somebody told me they may once in a while be guests on the show. The owner conference call. And the fight, the verbal back and forth of people that would never yell at David Stern. That did? That were yelling at David Stern. Because they were afraid of the precedent that he was setting. Now, again, the rare situation where the league owned the New Orleans team at the time. So, yeah. 
Russia has freed Brittany Griner in a dramatic high-level prisoner exchange that brings the WNBA star back to the United States after almost 11 months in detention. Swap made at a time of heightened tensions over the invasion of Ukraine, achieved a top goal for President Joe Biden, who carried a heavy price and left behind Paul Whelan, an American jailed for nearly four years in Russia. Uh, and you can hear Mike and Mark uh, discuss uh, this topic as it... We did? Oh, yeah. On the bridge when it the news came out uh, uh, earlier this morning. Yes. Elsewhere, rookie Paolo Bancaro scored 10 of his 23 points in overtime, and the Orlando Magic snapped a nine-game losing streak with a 116-111 win over the Los Angeles Clippers. Bancaro, the top overall pick in the NBA draft, made all six of his free throws in the final seven seconds of overtime, rallying the Magic from a 111-110 deficit. Snap! That nine-game losing skid right there. Statement win, Mark. Statement win. Okay, uh, I, I'm gonna touch a little bit more on that game last night. Next. Uh, with that being said, how about this statement win? Julius Randle had 34 points and 17 rebounds, and the Knicks capitalized on another key Atlanta Hawks injury to coast to a 113-89 victory on Wednesday. Randle made six three-pointers and added five assists against an injury depleted and overmatched Atlanta front court. Uh, well, not really statement when you kind of anticipate it, you know, Trey Young having his own issues, going to get his coach fired and you feel the train coming for the Knicks now or came yeah. under 500. Uh, speaking of trains, you know, a train we got coming out of, uh, another train coming out of the ATL. That's yeah. the Desmond Ritter train. Was he named starter? He's been named the starter. I got that right. Did I not say you before? Did. All right. You did. Yeah. yeah. All right. They're not very good, though, are they? Who? The Falcons. No, but this was kind of a gap year for the Falcons. I mean, I don't think people thought Marcus Mariota was a long-term answer there. And I think now you give Desmond Ritter a chance, the final, what, what, five games of the season, and see if you have something there. It's a good time to do it. As much as the South may be open, it's not. The Bucs are going to win the division. (laughs) The Bucs. What record are the Bucs going to win the division with? Um. Uh, nine and eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shortstop Xander Bogarts and the San Diego Padres agreed to an eleven-year, two hundred and eighty million dollar contract late Wednesday night. A move that brings the longtime Boston Red Sox luminary to a team already laden with star talent. The deal consummated as an especially attractive winter meet. Active winter meetings came to a close. Adding Bogarts to a Padres team that already includes Juan Soto, Manny Machado, and Fernando Tatis Jr. Meanwhile, the uh, for Boston, they've lost another homegrown talent who made his debut at the age of 20 and leads at 30 after opting out of the final three years of his contract. According to pastry lovers, uh, this is the top city for pastries. Oh. Okay. What is it? New York? San Francisco. New York is second. Oh, okay. That's close then. Meanwhile, outfielder Masataka Yoshida and the Boston Red Sox agreed to a five-year, $90 million contract locked in on the deal the first day he was eligible. They also pay the, what, uh, $15 million $15 million posting fee. fee, Yeah, yeah. 
So let's spend $105 million on an unproven uh, Major League Baseball town. I'm sure he's he could be, he could translate well, but the translation rate isn't always as successful as you want it to be. Or just re-sign a guy that has been with you since he first signed as an amateur. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, can I just ask you a question? Yes. Uh, the Yankees gave Judge nine years, and he's going to be 31. Mm-hmm. Bogarts is 30. Yeah. How many years would you have been comfortable? Eight. Okay. And and, and the market is 8, 9, 10, 11 right now. Mm -hmm. But like I acknowledge, now I think for Judge, because of his frame, there's a better chance of that physically breaking down in the second half of that agreement. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Bogart's a, a chance of injury, but okay, she, she said eight. Right. Well, it's like we talked about this before uh, before the show. It's like, but we spent all that money on Trevor's story last year? Right, right. To play a position he hadn't played before, really. Right. Second base. The point I would add about Judge at, at 31, and again, yes, as a Yankee fan, I'm glad he's staying. It's the business you have to pay, right? But, but you know, we talked about this. You know one of the challenges that, that Judge and the Yankees had? It was three years at Fresno State. Yeah. Meaning, he his clock to Major League Baseball, remember, he didn't get to Major League Baseball at a young, like Bogarts played for the Red Sox at 20. Yeah. Aaron Judge did not do that. Now, the Yankees could have given him an extension and avoid the arbitration and Maybe that is the thing that you would have wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you are paying, fair or not, you are paying to some degree to reward the athlete for the job done. It's like Jeter's last, second to last contract. It was more about paying him for what you didn't pay him earlier in his uh, years before arbitration and free agency. But that, that, that's what it is. Uh, and the last bit, can I give you some theme park news? Um... Okay. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Shrek 4D over at uh, Universal City. I used to love that ride. Oh, when my kids were small, that was great. Air conditioning, fun. Mm -hmm. Well, it's gone. What? Yep. And Universal today announced it will be... Pick three, pick three, my lord. I I love that thing. Uh, Being replaced by Illuminations Villain Con Minion Blast. What is that? Minions, man. Say it again. Illumination, yeah. it's the company that makes the Minions movies. Illumination's Villain Con Minion yeah, first Blast. Off, Illumination's Villain Con does sound like a AEW pay-per-view this Saturday. It really does, yes. Yeah. I'm, I am in agreement with that. With blasters in hand, visitors will step onto a moving pathway that will take them around different scenes. They will earn points by blasting oh, a variety. Oh, who doesn't like point rides? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. come on. This is this Buzz Lightyear, right? I mean, who doesn't like those? And also part of this... Uh, Mont- and of course, your gun doesn't work when you don't get a high score and your six-year-old has eight million. Uh, Monsters Cafe also gone. Going to mm. get a Minions Cafe. Okay. Yeah. All in so on there's the Minions. more movies of them coming? Uh, we just had Minions Rise of Gru come out this year. We've got another Despicable Me movie coming out next year. Okay. These print money, Mark. So did the pandemic, but it didn't really help the economy. 
That's it on the news. Be sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe. Just go there and leave us a five-star rating. This is, of course, a five-star segment. I think my waiter... No. He, he was a news head? No. He recognized someone else at the table who's in media, but... Yeah. It's kind of like... <clears throat> did anyone notice the ketchup <laughs> on your pants? No, because I did a great... T- First off, it was blood. It wasn't ketchup, and I cleaned it off, and, and the area dried before, so I... Look good. Oh, Billy Napier says Jack Miller the third is expected to be the starter for Florida at the Las Vegas Bowl. Otherwise, it was random fan. <laughs> a history lesson coming up in about twenty minutes of a story that very few of you will have ever heard of, and if you do know of, then you're in the plus thirty category. But up next, something that the NBA should be embarrassed about, but won't, and it involved the Magic game last night. Next. Victory song with the win over the LA Clippers last night. Brought to you by our friends at Greenway Dodge and Greenway Ford. Wrap it up with the holidays at Greenway Ford and Greenway Dodge. Up to 9000 off with rates as low as 0%. New Grand Cherokees, Explorers, Rams, F-150s. Over 2,000 vehicles. Shop now at GreenwayFord.com and GreenwayDodge.com. Greenway. The only way. Um... Last night, the Magic beat the Clippers. I mentioned this at the start of our program, for those that weren't with us. And I I wanted to kind of revisit for a second. And, again, good for the Magic. Snapped a losing streak. They're down by 18. The first quarter is a disaster. And the Magic scratch and claw their way back. They didn't really scratch and claw. Scott, have you clawed? No. Anything like, you know, just like make your hand. No, I feel like that would hurt. Magic come back and win. And... As I say, whether win or lose for the Magic and the Magic fans during this era, you can always focus on the players that played really well and take the bright spot out of efforts. But, hey, they won last night. And the team should feel good and should feel like, hey, if we could just stay healthy and get these guys playing together, and who doesn't want to see that? So take nothing away of what the Magic did last night. They earned their win in overtime against the Clippers, had to execute uh, some plays down the stretch. Paolo hits big free throws down the stretch. Uh, I thought the Magic did a really good job defensively. Jamal Mosley has had some, I think, balanced criticism because of the players he's had to work with, but I thought they did a good job last night on forcing other people to beat the Magic than the Stars for uh, uh, the Clippers. Now, Having said all that, I thought last night's game for the NBA, for the NBA, not the Magic, for the NBA, is embarrassing. I I mean, why? What what do you mean? Nothing that the Magic did. But last night's game is common in the NBA. And I do think the league privately, and to a degree publicly, has acknowledged what took place last night. I joke about this sometimes, and you can see for yourself. 
Heck, it happens in college basketball. Sometimes I sit there doing a game right by the UCF bench. We call timeout, and I look to my left, and I don't even know two-thirds of the people that are around the UCF bench, student managers and other. It's like, where do we get all these people? Um, in an NBA game, and if you're a older Magic fan like me and my demographic of... Plus 30. You might remember when Matt Gukas was the coach for the first NBA team for the Magic. John Gabriel and Bob Weiss sat next to him. And? Lenny Currier was the trainer at the end of the bench. That was it. That was it. When a team called timeout, uh, someone handed them a stat sheet, and they would look at it. But there wasn't a huddle of, like, 15 people. There wasn't two rows behind the bench where you had guys with iPads There wasn't 12 trainers in a back room monitoring things. That was it. Now, times change. The game evolves. But every NBA team has a sports science department. Every team, whatever they call it, it's a sports science department. Not the trainer and the team doctor. No, 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 it's different. Uh, Player gets hurt, how do you treat the injury? Okay. Trainer, doctor, sports science monitors everything of the player every single day. How long are you sleeping? How do you sleep? When you work out, we put devices on you. We we find out how fast you go. We make sure the foods that you eat uh, fit your diet. Uh, everything is monitored now. Big investments. To the point that every NBA team has a formula to determine a player's return from injury. They're not all the same, because not every agenda is the same. Some teams that are trying and believe they can win a championship might be different. I talked about this recently. Versus teams that are not likely to be in the hunt for a play-in round, and eh, we take a little bit longer to get a guy back. But last night, the Clippers said not one, not two, but as LeBron would say, not one, not three players on minute restrictions in... Reggie Jackson, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard. Players that have all dealt with injuries and minute restrictions. Last night, they were 30 minutes each. 30 minutes each. And Ty Lue, the coach of the Clippers, knew this going in. They didn't tap on the shoulder mid-first quarter and go, hey. No, he knew going in. And it is the assignment of at least one person throughout the game to let Ty Lue know how you're distributing minutes. Hey, I mean, be careful. If you want to use Kawhi late, hey, we're at such and such minutes. Well, they're up 32-14 first quarter. Hey, we're good. We're going to blow these guys out. We probably don't even need the minute restriction. Well, then the magic scratch and claw. There it is again. Back in the game. Heck, then they take the lead. And while game 26 of 82... And the NBA may not be important because if you're the Clippers, you think, look, we'll win enough games to make the playoffs. We're not going to be the one seed, but we'll get in. Hopefully we'll avoid the playing round, and then we'll take our chances, and we'll preserve Kawhi and Paul along the way so that then we can crank it up. And if you have followed Kawhi Leonard, when no one questions the talent of Kawhi Leonard, he's an excellent basketball player. But here's Kawhi Leonard's games played. 
Well, didn't play last year with the ACL. Then he had a bubble year. 52, 57, 69. Not 69, 69. Uh, this year he's played in seven games of the 26. But but he was on a minute restriction last night. And as the game is going along in the fourth quarter, and it's now a possession basketball game, uh, Ty Lue is juggling the minutes used. And someone's telling him. Hey, 28 minutes, 29 minutes. He even said in his post game last night, as I'm reading the L.A. Times story, about these prescribed minute limits. And late in the basketball game, how Ty Lu knew we had a minute left with Kawhi. How are we going to use it? <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's sports science. That's what they tell you. That all the data we put in here, uh, listen, this is what we know, and this is why this guy can't play more than this many minutes. Because if he does, I don't know, does his head blow off or, or, or something? Kawhi played 30 minutes last night. 30 minutes. Reggie Jackson played 31. Paul George played 33. George talked about afterwards he wished he could have played more in games like this, And but I understand the big picture. This happens everywhere in the NBA, man. It happens. The Magic Cabot... Mark L. Fultz was on a minute restriction. Somebody determines this is how many minutes tonight. Oh, back-to-back, well, he'll play this many minutes tonight. He won't play that game, uh, but then next game he'll be available for this. I get it. I get it. These are multimillion-dollar investments, but that now is a priority. And for the NBA, like I said often about college football, I understand the business side of it, but the optics of it, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Because now, why would a player care about playing 80-82 games? Who cares? I'll play in 57 and get paid the same amount of money. I don't need to play the other 25 games. Whatever. I get dinged up. Yeah. I take a few extra games to come back. Then I come back. I'm on a minute restriction. Don't you want to win? Yeah, I want to win. But they tell me how long I can play, so I don't question that. And whatever. I understand why. I just... I just don't think it's good for your game. And it is an issue in the NBA. The league doesn't really talk about it much. Once in a while, Adam Silver talks about you know the back-to-backs and how they do away with it, the national TV games. The league knows it's a problem. But now, load management has now become far greater than just that. Now, it's exactly everything I said about what you eat and, 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 and every workout and then how many minutes you can play. Because, man... If Kawhi played 32 minutes last night, he may not be with us today. Heavy sarcasm. I don't know how anybody tells you that's really good for the game. Well, don't you want to preserve the stars? I'd like to. I'd actually like to see the stars play in close basketball games because you know what makes stars? They do elite things in elite moments. Not being off the floor in the final seconds of regulation or not even starting overtime and then being told you got about 40 seconds to use Kawhi Leonard in overtime. Who, who wants to watch that? Again, good for the magic, but good grief. History lesson next. Ah, yes. Gather around, boys and girls. Put on your favorite holiday sweater. Get some eggnog. Do you have any holiday sweaters? Not since I, you know, mm-hmm. changed the physical makeup of this mm-hmm. rock. Do you like eggnog? Uh, 
I'm not anti-agnostic, but I don't go out of my way. You know, like it's not like a hey, I have to have at least one no, glass. No, no, no. But gather around for today's history lesson, Scott. I want you to turn the clock back with us here, and I want you to think of college football in the South in the '60s. Okay, I'm imagining you and Bianchi doing your SEC voices. Exactly. I just want you to think. SEC football in the South. I mean, you're going to do the whole history lesson in in that voice? Just kind of get an idea. Back then, Alabama football's got Bear Bryant. Bear has taken over the Alabama football program in 1958. In 1961, Alabama wins the national championship as they go 11-0. They roll through the season. And beat Arkansas in the Sugar Bowl. Then played at Tulane Stadium. And uh, they win. That season, Alabama gave up 25 points. And the tie to the national champions. Scott, 1961, after Alabama was the national champion, it is no joke if people said the most powerful man in the South might be Bear Bryant. Oh, wow. Alabama football was that big. The Bear had the Liberty National Championship, and it was big. It was big to the state, and Southern football was about Bear Bryant. In 1962, there was a story written, Scott, in a publication called the Saturday Evening Post. Saturday Evening Post would be the equivalent of a, a, of a news feature magazine. Okay. And the story was written by Furman Bishop. Oh! Furman Bishop wrote many years, Scott, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If Furman Bishop wrote something, you know it's true. That is not a popular name anymore. Because Furman Bishop wrote it. Scott, the story was college football is going berserk. A game ruled by brute force needs a house cleaning. In the long story that Furman Bishop wrote, he said that college football was too violent. He wrote about the number of deaths that had taken place in football and in college football that year. He called out Paul Bear Bryant because of the famed Junction Boys at Texas A&M and how Bryant got to Alabama and instituted the same type of preseason conditioning and then talked about players that were too physical during games that were out there just to hurt the opposition. And he wrote about certain players in the Alabama football team and he took quotes of Paul Bear Bryant that had meant to be more like Hey, when he's out there, he's looking to hurt somebody, literally, and pointed out certain plays. The bear did not like, Scott, the expose that had been written. Bryant wondered what he could do about the reputation that the Furman Bisher piece had gotten back then. The Saturday Evening Post, if it had a big feature, that got attention. And the bear did not like being called out. He wasn't the only one, but he didn't like it. I would imagine he would not like that. Remember that, because we'll get back to it. But now we're going to fast forward and get to September of 1962. Alabama opens the season against Georgia. They're the defending national champions and playing Georgia in what is a big football game. Scott, Wally Butts. What a Southern name that is. That is a Southern name, yeah. Huh? Wally Butts. If you just think and say it a few times, Scott, Wally Butts. There's Wally Butts, right? 
and the highlights are like really fast back and forth. Wally Butts coached Georgia from 1939 to 1960. Scott, Wally Butts felt like he didn't deserve to lose his job, but he was forced out as a coach at Georgia. They made him the athletic director. Mm. He didn't like it. He was angry at the people that had removed him as the coach. Uh, absolutely, I could see that. No one wants to be removed from their job. They made him the athletic director. Well, Wally Butts made some business deals that didn't go particularly well. Wally Butts wasn't as financially secure as some might think of a guy that was coaching Georgia football for 22 years. So one day, Wally Butts apparently goes to make a phone call. On Friday morning, September 14, 1962, in Atlanta, George Burnett picks up his phone and dials a number to a local public relations firm. Back then, Scott, this is how they did numbers. Jackson 53536, and the operator would connect you. Mm Mm-hmm. He kept trying, and on the fourth or fifth attempt, he had dialed into the number, and he heard something, and it was a conversation. And George Burnett didn't know, should, should I hang up or, or, or what? But he heard the following. Coach Bryant is out on the field, but he'll come to the phone. Do you want to hold, Coach Butts, or shall we call you back? He said, I'll hold. George Burnett was a little bit confused. He kind of wondered, and wait, wait Bryant, Butts, uh, huh? He stays on the line, Scott, and is listening to a phone conversation that takes place between the former football coach at Georgia, now athletic director, and Paul Bear Bryant. And he wonders what he's listening to. Well, according to Burnett, he hears, Hello, Bear. (laughs) Hello, Wally. You got something for me. Burnett says, Butts began to give Brian detailed information about the plays and formations that Georgia would likely use in the opening day game eight days later. Butts outlined Georgia's offensive plays for Brian, told him how Georgia planned to defend against Alabama's attack. Butts mentioned about players and mentioned by name, formations, play calls. Brian even asked, what about the quick kick? He says, don't worry about quick kicks. No one can do it. Butts talked about the Georgia quarterback tipping plays and runs or passes and so forth. The conversation ends... And now George Burnett wonders, what am I going to do with this? Well, Scotty did nothing initially. The football game is played, and Alabama opens the 1962 season against Georgia, and they win 35 nothing. Burnett says a few weeks go by, and he wonders, what, what do I do? He knew that Butts had been in business trouble, Heck, Burnett himself had some issues uh, when it came to finances. Later, Burnett finds himself with some individuals and says, Hey, I, I think I want to tell you a story. And I'm editing this from a timing standpoint. Mm-hmm. He tells a story to a few other people that then tell some other people. And all of a sudden, it becomes, wait a minute. Did Wally Butts give Bear Bryant information to help Alabama beat Georgia? Was Wally Butts so upset what Georgia did that he was willing to help Alabama beat them? Did Wally Butts bet on the game because he had lost $70,000 in a business deal? And was he trying to do something to help himself? Burnett meets and talks with a number of people. Lawyer offices. Accusations are made back and forth. The notes that he took as he wrote during the phone conversation details about what he heard. He was asked if he could give the notes to a set of lawyers, and he did. 
Scott fast forward and he found himself meeting with the then commissioner of the SEC and a group of lawyers who began to grill him as if he was on trial himself. Accusations, are you sure that you knew what you knew? And Scott, at one point, a police officer with an attorney said, don't you have some financial issues of your own? Didn't you bounce a few checks along the way? What else are you hiding? Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, he feels like the pressure's on him. Well, the story is written in the Saturday Evening Post. Remember that one? Remember the Saturday Evening Post that wrote about Bear Bryant and his practice policies? Mm -hmm. Well, the Saturday Evening Post in March of 1963 released the story of a college football fix. And in it wrote in great detail what George Burnett knew, talked about his whole story. And as you can imagine, Bear Bryant didn't like it when the story went out. He knew it was coming out. So did Wally Butts. The story accused Bear Bryant of accessing this information. Wally Butts had maybe helping Alabama beat Georgia to help himself. So Butts sued and went after the Saturday Evening Post. And so did Bear Bryant. In the South, the potential jury pool was made up of people that loved Bear Bryant and people that loved Wally Betts. The Saturday Evening Post was forced to defend itself. The publication had struggled financially and knew that they were up against tough odds. Butts won his suit. $3 million reduced to $460,000. He received eventually $136,000 after all the appeals along the way. The judge had said that the challenge along the way was the Saturday Evening Post acknowledged they never looked at Burnett's notes. They only trusted his word. Why didn't they look at his notes? Bear Bryant was part of that suit, and then Bear sued him again <laughs> with the second article. Bear won. He settled for $300,000 tax-free. It likely led to the end of the Saturday Evening Post because they were financially drained. And it proved that just because you are a public figure, and it still is a recognized case study by many people in law school today, it doesn't mean that somebody could say anything about you. And it was a landmark case, the Butts versus the publishing company and Bear Bryant. And yet other people will tell you there was no chance the Bear was losing mm-hmm. in the South. Even though Burnett's story was backed up that the call took place at the exact time, and there were players that had said it seemed like Georgia knew everything that we were doing, except when they went to court, you do know what the Bears' side did and Wally Butt's side. All they had to find was a few Georgia and Alabama players to say, we had no idea what the plays were, and they were believed. Because in the South, nobody questioned Bear Bryant and even Wally Butts. Sixty years ago, that happened in college football. Can you imagine somebody writing a story today about a fixed game with that type of dots? Oh, to like Saban or something? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. 1962, um, Bear Bryan and Wadi Butts. And the story against the Saturday Evening Post. What'd you learn? Uh, I learned there's some great names from way back in the 60s in, in the SEC. Uh, how much power Bear Bryant really has. Yeah. You just don't mess with him. Yeah. I mean, the story's much deeper. It's an unbelievable read if you ever go do some research on it. 
and it did leave a lot of people speculating. A lot of people uh, that were involved were financially in trouble, and some kind of wondered what happened with that. Back to wrap up the Thursday show next. Time for the latest news, gossip, trends, and off-the-wall stories. Trends. Ooh, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Show's over. Scott produced. Tom Martin. We'll see you tomorrow.